Welcome to McKinsey on Startups, a series focused on helping entrepreneurs and investors accelerate growth, brought to you by Fuel, the firm's startup practice. Each episode, McKinsey editor Daniel Eisenberg speaks with founders, investors, and industry experts to share the latest perspectives across borders and sectors. Hello, and welcome to McKinsey on Startups. I'm Daniel Eisenberg. When it comes to startups raising capital these days, new records seem to be broken practically every quarter. But few digital sectors are booming as much as the business of money known as fintech. Globally, fintech raised more than $90 billion in funding in the first three quarters of this year, almost double the pace of 2020, with 42 new fintech unicorns minted in the third quarter alone. Helping fuel this massive growth is the widespread belief that nearly every company, whether technically a financial services provider or not, wants to be a fintech player to one degree or another. That is because, as Arik Stillman, the co-founder and CEO of Israeli fintech unicorn Rapid, says on today's episode, all sorts of companies understand that the way to monetize on the relationships that they have with their customers is through payments. Stillman, a serial entrepreneur, founded the global fintech-as-a-service platform provider to make it relatively easy and simple for any digital business to embed a wide array of financial services into their offerings. Prior to Rapid, Arik founded IT Navigator, a cloud-based contact center and unified communications platform, which was acquired by Avaya in 2013. Thanks so much for joining us today, Arik. Tell us a little bit about Rapid. What does the company do and what's the problem you're trying to solve? So uh, Rapid is a fintech as a service platform, which is completely different from traditional payments companies. People keep asking me if we do payments. Yes, there is a payment service inside Rapid, but we're not a payments company. Uh, we basically provide a white label infrastructure for fintech companies to build on top of us any type of solution that they might want in order to sell businesses on all consumers. One of the services that exist in the platform is payment collection, but there are also additional capabilities like disbursement, custodian accounts, FX, compliance capabilities, card issuing, etc. So basically, you can think about us as a type of Amazon AWS for the fintech space, a white label infrastructure that enables other companies to build on top of us seamless financial applications. I've heard you talk about every company wants to be a fintech company. So it's really for anybody with a, a digital presence who's, who's going to do any kind of commerce. Is that right? Yes. In today's world, almost every single company wants to become a fintech because uh, companies understand that their way to monetize on the relationships that they have with their customers is through payments. And basically our infrastructure enables these companies to start providing fintech or payments related solutions. You've spoken before about having ambitions and consolidating with the industry and expanding into new markets. Are there any new markets in particular that you think will have the most opportunity and or possibly be the most challenging to move into? We actually operate globally today. We have an operation in APAC in Latin America, in the US, in Europe. Uh, we're super excited mainly for markets like Brazil, Mexico, Indonesia, Thailand, where you see a lot of adoption and growth of innovative fintech solutions and a lot of adoption of wallet style applications that are basically changing the way people are using financial services. In terms of the variety of how people pay, it's actually much broader outside the U.S., whether it's wallets or other types of payments. Um, can you just talk briefly about how much that's evolving in other markets outside the U.S.? Yeah, the U.S. is very card-centric market. Uh, almost every single person has a debit card. Uh, some people have credit cards. When you look at other markets, Brazil, Indonesia, Malaysia, Thailand, Philippines, Mexico, and others, there is basically a leap. People skipped the cards 
because they didn't have cards. And then came in newer technologies, mostly mobile payment based, a lot of wallet platforms. And what you see, especially in Asia Pacific, is the fact that the big brands are becoming payment methods. Alibaba and Tencent were the first ones to do it with Alipay and WeChat. But the reality is that Grab did it with GrabPay, Singapore and Indonesia. Gojek did it. And basically every single company that has a very big number of consumers, they decided to start monetizing on these consumers by providing payment applications that replaces the need to use debit or credit cards. We see massive adoptions of these wallet-style-based solutions in Asia Pacific, and now the wave is coming into Latin America, which is a market that is up for grabs because it is a very cash-oriented market due to COVID-adopted faster digital payments. And we will see the same type of an approach in APAC. You've been moving a fair amount into, like you said, compliance, AML, KYC, that sort of stuff. Is that the next big area for Rapid to expand into, or are there other sectors within fintech that you see yourself uh, moving into more in the next few years? Uh, so everybody uh, these days are looking into solutions that provide them an all-in-one service that includes already building transaction monitoring, KYC, AML, KYB, because the need to go and integrate multiple companies in order to really be compliant and make sure that your system can work is becoming a huge overhead that companies cannot afford themselves. We decided to go into this business and build our own Rapid Trust product, which is basically our own compliance as a service platform that exists within Rapid. And we offered it bundled into our own product. So when somebody is using Rapid, they also get all the compliance capabilities with us. It's becoming more and more a requirement in today's world because the majority of the Business models are marketplace-style business models. And when you work in a marketplace-style business model, there is a lot of complexity around money movement, KYB, account opening that didn't exist in the past because the regulators didn't really get the concept of marketplaces. But I think today the regulators globally are getting it faster and faster. And companies have a need to basically have integrated compliance into their payment sector. And how big an issue is regulation in this space? for a player like yourself? How much does that factor into how you think about strategy near term and longer term? It's big. As soon as you start moving a lot of money and you're operating in multiple jurisdictions, the regulators are always looking at you. And when the regulators are looking at you, you need to make sure that you're compliant and every single client that you have is working in a compliant way. Now, there are two ways to do it. Either by hoping that your clients are compliant or by having a very good tech stack that will make sure they're compliant. And we use option number two. We basically put our trust in our technology because otherwise the smallest client that you have can come into the platform, create some kind of a technical foul, right? From a compliance perspective and the regulator can shut you down. Even if you have a billion dollar business because $100,000 of a transaction and shouldn't go through, went through, uh, you can basically risk your entire business. We put massive amount of effort into uh, compliance and productizing compliance. We have dedicated the product and engineering things that the only thing they do is compliance related tasks and automating them. And we're less believers in having a huge compliance team and people that go through spreadsheets and paperwork, automating stuff and making sure that our technology stays up to date with the requirements of every single regulator that we work with on planet Earth. Speaking of regulation, you guys talk about your company being the world's largest local payments network. Um, Can you talk a little bit about 
sort of that as a differentiator, how you're global, but everything has to be very local, whether it's the way payments work or regulation in each market and how distinct each market is and how much of a challenge that is to navigate? That's a huge challenge. Uh, Every single country has its own way of defining the rules and regulations. Every single country has its own payment rails these days and its own requirements. And basically, an e-commerce transaction in the U.S. versus one in Singapore or in Indonesia or in Brazil will look completely differently from a compliance perspective. The payment methods that people use are also bringing into this blend a very complicated thing because if you're paying card, it's one thing. If you're paying cash, it's another thing. If you're paying with a wallet, it's another thing. So basically, the matrix that you have to run behind the scenes in your platform, if you have tech or inside the head of your compliance people, if you don't have technology, is so complicated these days that the capability to actually run a global platform like Rapid is becoming mission impossible on a daily basis, unless your tech is really top class. And obviously the fintech space is huge these days, and there does seem to be an ever-expanding number of competitors as players expand across value chains. What do you think is the differentiator for Rapid versus some of the other fintech-as-a-service players who have similar broad ambitions? How do you feel you can sustain that differentiation competitively? It really depends at the end of the day what the clients want to buy, right? Um, And I will give you an example that, again, is not coming from payments, and then I will give you the payments or the fintech example. Let's start with an example of cloud computing. If somebody needs to host a server somewhere, then he has a zillion companies on planet Earth that can offer you hosting of servers, right? You have endless number of providers. Uh, On the other hand, if you really are trying to build a product that is sustainable with high availability, that can work in multiple jurisdictions, you need a lot of compute power, you need database services, you need network load balancing, and you're really trying to build some kind of a product, you need to go either to Amazon AWS, to, to Google Compute Cloud, to Azure by Microsoft, and that's pretty much that. And it's the same thing in fintech or fintech as a service like we're defining. If you only want to collect a payment from a consumer with a debit or a credit card, there are a million companies on planet Earth that can give you this capability. But if you're trying to build something that is a little bit more sophisticated, that if you're building a marketplace, if you're building a wallet application, if you're building some kind of a sophisticated payout platform for payrolls, you need a platform. The reality is that Rapid is pretty much the only platform that exists today, unless you want to go into an integration project with five different companies. And that's pretty much the competitive differentiation that we have. Our sales teams are not going after these typical checkout experiences, clients that only need debit or credit card payment collection, but we are going after more sophisticated use cases that typically are in more than one country when the merchant has a need to transact in multiple jurisdictions. This is where our bread and butter exists. To your mind, there's nothing comparable being offered in terms of such a broad platform in this space? No. uh, Listen, if you want to compete with Rapid, you need to go and combine five different companies in a single solution. And even that, you will be able to do only maybe in one country or region. If you want to do it, for example, in the US, Europe, and uh, in Singapore, nobody can do it except of us. You want to do Brazil and Mexico. And in the U.S., nobody can do it except of us, right? So the combination of the countries plus the number of services that we offer creates quite a unique competitive differentiator. And speaking of acquisitions, you guys have been doing a fair amount of M&A lately. I think Valtor might be the most recent 
in Iceland, and you have rapid ventures, your own venture arm. More and more companies seem to be taking this approach of investing in addition to fully buying companies within the wider ecosystem. What is your ambition for Rapid's venture arm, and how do you weigh investing versus outright buying companies, such as recently done? So Rapid Ventures is really a small venture. It's like a $25 million venture fund, which is quite small. Uh, and the main intent behind Rapid Ventures is to invest into businesses that are using Rapid, where we see that these businesses are gaining traction and where we can help them to accelerate their own business while building it on our platform. We saw in the past, before Rapid Ventures started, quite a lot of small businesses that basically started to build stuff on top of Rapid and suddenly they became very successful in big companies. On the other hand, we saw businesses that have very unique business models uh, but they didn't have enough funding in order to scale, even though, from our perspective, they could have become a very meaningful client. And Rapid Ventures is here to do both things. One, gain profit you know, from the fact that we actually see the best clients that we have and we can potentially invest in them and make sure that when they scale, we also profit from that as a company. And the second thing is we help the smaller size of clients to basically build proof of concepts, launch products on top of us, and then later on, when they continue and scale their business and they raise capital for bigger VCs, we continue to provide them our capabilities and we benefit from it as a platform. M&A is a different story, right? In the M&A case, typically we're buying much more mature companies. We're not buying technology. We believe that our technology is superior to any technology that exists out there. So we will never buy technology. But on the other hand, what we will buy uh, is one out of the two, either all payment platforms, that have existing clients that we can digest into our platform and basically migrate them into Rapid and to buy them in a lower multiplier and then get them traded at a Rapid multiplier. Or on the other hand, we can buy ourselves into a market from a regulatory perspective that is complex. For example, we did now a deal in Hong Kong. We wanted to be in the Hong Kong market with a regulatory license. We basically bought a company. We didn't announce it yet, but just because of the regulatory licenses that they have. Is that Valitor? Where does that fall? Valitor is an Icelandic company that is very big, by the way. It's a company with around 200 employees with a massive portfolio of clients, but very old technology, very old good payments platform. Our goal there is, again, post-closing to migrate all the clients to the Rapid platform. And basically, we bought them in a low multiplier. And later on, they would be traded as a Rapid multiplier. You also have something called Rapid Accelerate, which sounds a little... Almost like, how do you view that arm? So the incubator is something else. At the current stage, the incubator is available only in Israel, in Tel Aviv. Uh, and this is where you see very, very early stage entrepreneurs before they actually have anything. We basically help them to build a business case and to create some kind of a prototype, leveraging the Rapid platform. And later, these entrepreneurs can turn into a rapid venture investment, or we can assist them by connecting them to the VCs that we know extremely well. The goal, again, is to help very early stage companies to build products on top of the rapid platform so rapid can monetize on that from a revenue and volume perspective. Let's talk briefly about the background of Rapid and your past experiences that led you to founding it. You already successfully founded and sold a cloud company before. It's not totally clear the common thread between your previous company and Rapid. So I'm just wondering how you ended up in this space. 
by mistake. We came from a cloud computing company that was actually in the unified communication space, no clue about fintech payments, financial services at all. It was back in the hype days of Uber at the end of 2015. Everybody wanted to be the Uber of something. We decided to go into consumer payments with no clue uh, about what we're doing. And we stumbled into every single problem that exists on planet Earth. From the fact that you need to get regulated, that you need to connect to somebody that would do acquiring, somebody to do issuing, somebody to hold funds in custody, somebody else to do FX. And basically a year into this new company, we found ourselves in a massive integration project to seven different companies, paying lawyers a lot of money to get regulated just in order to launch our consumer payments product in one country. We looked around and it didn't make any sense that it was 2017 back then that this is the heavy lifting that every single company on planet Earth needs to do in order to learn something in fintech. And we found out that every single company back then in 2017 was rebuilding the infrastructure again and again and again from scratch, which is equivalent to building your own data center. Nobody builds data centers right anymore. Nobody does that. Uh, so we decided to pivot the idea to what we understand much better, which is a type of a cloud computing platform that provides you the infrastructure to build financial service applications. Totally by accident, you figured out this glaring need. Were you surprised that no one had tried to do what you realized you could start to do? A fully integrated platform? Yeah, we were very surprised originally. But later on, you know, when it started to succeed, it started to be like mushrooms after the rain. Banking is a service, fintech is a service, this is a service, everybody is doing the same pitch. But... I remember when we were trying to raise capital in 2016 and 17, nobody wanted to invest because everybody thought it's a stupid idea, right? And did they think it was a stupid idea because they thought it existed or they just thought there were so many players and they didn't realize? They thought it is way too complicated to build and nobody needs it because there are so many players that you can waste your time integrating to. But the market showed differently. Nobody wants to do all these massive integration. I'm wondering from your experience of building your first company, if any lessons have proven particularly important in your journey building Rapid. Had you encountered that kind of skepticism? Oh, yeah. Anybody that is an entrepreneur, unless he's super lucky, stumbles into this uh, skepticism. Why do you think you can do it? Why Google is not doing it? Why Facebook is not doing it? Why Amazon is not doing it? There is always this thought that people have that other companies are already doing something that you're trying to build. It's almost automatic. I had it in my previous company also, and you know, I'm pretty much used to it. I think if you're not getting asked these questions, then you probably stumbled into very bad investors. Right. And I know you've talked about how a lot of folks don't really know how to pitch to investors and that you yourself didn't know originally how to do it and how different it was. Can you talk a little bit about that and what you've learned? Sure. A lot of entrepreneurs are very focused on building a company and selling their product. And they think that the pitch of selling the product, like they pitch a client that potentially will pay the company money, is the same pitch that you need to give a VC in order to invest. Uh, but it's completely different. A client wants to understand the benefits to his own business. He wants to understand the features. He wants to understand how much would it cost versus the competition, how much money it will save, and etc. The investors don't care about these things. They want to understand the bigger picture. Tell me about the industry. Tell me how big this thing can be. You need to sell the dream of how big this thing can be and why will you change the industry. If you would come with this pitch to the client, the client will never buy from you 
because he wants to solve a problem. If you come with the problem solving to the investor, typically the investor would say it's too small. I, I don't have any profitability here. I don't care about these features. Uh, and that's a completely different pitch. Now, it took me probably two years to understand that because my first company was a bootstrap startup. So I never raised capital. And when I came for the first time to raise capital, I always did my sales pitch, which I thought is the best sales pitch in the world, which was a very good sales pitch. And I always sold the product, but I never raised capital. One time I got an email from a VC that told me, listen, the product is amazing. It looks like something good, but you don't know how to raise money from VCs. And I think that because of that, your company will fail. Uh, I printed this email. I have it framed on the wall of my room. And later on, this investor invested $200 million in my company in a $5 billion valuation. So apparently I was able to learn something and they also had to eat ahead at the end of the process. Is that something that you think more entrepreneurs are focused on? They get the product right, they're able to sell it to customers, and then they think the rest will take care of itself in terms of fundraising almost? Yes, they think that because they have product market fit and because they have a client that is paying for the product, the fundraising will come on its own and it's a mistake. Fundraising is the most important skill set that the CEO has in the seed A and B rounds of the company. You spend 60 to 80% of your time fundraising. It's all the time, never ending fundraising process. Uh, maybe today when you have all these mega rounds, it's only in the seed and the A, but at least back in 16, 17, and 18, 60 to 80% of my time was fundraising because you always need to plan the next round. You always need more capital. You always need to jump to the next level. And CEOs that spend too much time around other things in the business are basically making a mistake because the round is not going to come on its own. The dynamics of raising capital includes a lot of strategy. You need to understand who to talk to, how to pitch, which one of your existing investors can actually open the door for you and assist you in order to raise capital in a higher valuation. And there is a lot of chess games that are going on in parallel that you need to play in order to get to the result that you want. Yeah, definitely. Speaking with investors, VCs have said that one of the big mistakes entrepreneurs make is not thinking hard enough about the investors that they choose to work with. That's super important. And listen, if you take money from somebody that doesn't understand your business, it's going to end up very badly. Because at the end of the day, you want people to understand challenges and maybe can give you some advice here and there. They're not going to run the company instead of you, but at least they will sit in the board meeting and you will not need to explain to them every single thing from scratch because they have some kind of a baseline. And then they might say, oh, I've seen company X do that. I've seen company Y do that. Uh, and if you take money from somebody that doesn't understand that, you're basically wasting your time. You're wasting his time. He rolled the dice and you're going to babysit him for a very long time up until he's not going to become an investor. You've had incredible growth in recent years. You're on target to pass something like $20 billion in payment volume this year. And I think you have a goal of $100 billion. Now, throughout that process of growing so fast, especially in the last couple of years, what have been the biggest challenges of scaling that you've had to overcome? I think that recruiting of people and building mid-level management is the biggest challenge that we stumbled into. Because when the company is up to 50 and then up to 100 people, okay, you can still manage this pyramid in a certain way. But when you cross the 100 people and you get to 200, 300, 400, every single thing you did 
on a daily basis as a CEO or as a VP in the company is changing completely and things that you need to manage are changing. If you're not finding the right people, it would be this mid-level management. It's going to be super complicated to scale the business because you will not be in the weeds of every single thing that is going on. Even if you will work 24 hours a day, it's just impossible. And I think that this is the biggest challenge that we stumbled into together with the fact that we have really a global company with offices in like eight different places, remote teams of different cultures, different languages, bring this into the mix, bring COVID into the mix with the fact that people cannot travel and with all the respect to Zoom, nothing replaces the face-to-face meetings. And you basically have never-ending challenges that you need to resolve. Do you feel that you've figured out being able to recruit better and be more successful in getting the middle management? Not yet. It's an ongoing challenge, mainly because when you find somebody that is very good for mid-level management, he wants to be the VP. But you have already a VP that you don't want to replace, right? Right. And trying to convince these people that this company is going to continue and grow and later on they will go up in this pyramid is challenging. Uh, a lot of people that are extremely good want to have their own companies. They want to be entrepreneurs. So there are a lot of challenges there. In terms of that, the cultural issue and middle management, you've spoken about the challenge of having to shift to not trying to control everything and to really become more of a delegator and focus more on strategic thinking versus when your first company, which was smaller. How challenging has that been? Oh, it's super challenging. It sucks. I hate it because I'm not this type of a person, right? I like to be in the details. I like to see it with engineering. I like to talk to the salespeople. I like to talk to clients. Uh, I like to know exactly how much money we have in every single bank account that we have just because I like to have the knowledge. And moving out from this and zooming out and doing other things has been extremely challenging for me. But I learned the hard way that if I will not zoom out, then more important things will basically not happen. Bigger things like strategic M&As, fundraising in very big rounds, strategic deals with other partners. These type of things that can really take you to the next level will not happen if you will not zoom out from the day-to-day style. It took a while, but I got used to it. Right. You don't long for the days of being the early stage entrepreneur again? Oh, no, I do. I do. You do? (laughs) No, I do, of course. And I will take the early stage days anytime over the scale. Just because of the adrenaline rush, where you can see on an hourly basis how the product is moving. You see the first clients that are going into the platform. You feel everything, right? And you mentioned mega rounds earlier. You've recently done Series D and E in the last year. I'm wondering, this stage of fundraising, does it take up as much time? And how critical is it to strike while the iron is hot, so to speak, to fundraise when there's the opportunity, as opposed to just thinking we need to wait for the right moment? Today's market is super hot, right? Especially for payments. It's not complicated to raise money. It's not easy, but it's not complicated. If the company is good, there will be interest because every single VC on planet Earth wants to be in online payments one way or another. The number of good companies in online payment space is very limited. There's so much capital out there and so many VCs want to be in and they're not in Rapid or they're not in Stripe and etc. So they will invest in something because they need to be there. It's interesting because I remember I was trying to raise $2 million and nobody wanted to give me. And later on, I raised a $300 million round over a WhatsApp group. It's definitely, you know, different types of a dynamic. 
Right. Because I've heard you talk about needing to raise when the opportunity's there. You need to take the money as soon as you can. Do not wait because you never know when it will come back again. Nobody knows what will happen. Nobody has a crystal ball. The market can change. The valuation can shrink. There will be no money. If somebody offers you a mega round in a decent valuation plus, take the money. And the reason for it is that when you have a mega round, having a successful company is much easier because you can actually have enough money to plan long term, can implement a lot of things. And basically, it's a much more stable organization, right? And some people will think, oh, you have nothing to do with these 200 or 300 million. But it's not true. You plan long term. You know that you don't need to raise for the next five years. And suddenly, everything on your whiteboard changes. The entire dynamic changes and the companies are much healthier. Folks have talked about companies that raise too much too fast. Is that overhyped as a problem or is that more just about valuation and dilution? There is a big difference between a dog walking up that raises $300 million and a payments company that raises $300 million, right? In fintech, you need money. I'm raising money not because I want to raise money and I want to get diluted and I like, you know, talking to investors. In fintech, the reality is that you need money. A company in fintech or in payments that is raising a mega round, they have a huge for the capital and they will build a much more sustainable business long term. On the other hand, if you're building a dog walking up, yeah, it's a mistake. You don't need the money, right, at that stage. Because basically, you're going to gamble the money by trying to acquire consumers. So it depends on your business. I truly believe that in fintech, the mega rounds are mandatory in order to build a long-term sustainable business. You were speaking earlier about middle management and challenge there. I'm wondering how you balance the importance of technology as a driver of your journey versus people and culture. Listen, at the end of the day, people is everything that the tech company has, right? Uh, tech companies don't have lines of code. They have people that write the lines of code. Uh, and they have good marketing people that actually know how to execute the marketing strategy. And the marketing strategy wasn't invented on its own. So I think that uh, building a very good team and keeping the team long term, at least on an average of three years per person is a critical thing. And we're trying to basically keep our people happy and make sure they have amazing experience within the company in order to build an amazing experience for our own clients. You talked about how you run rapid out of a sprawling geographic base. How challenging has that been? So Tel Aviv is the headquarters. It's a very Israeli company, but we have operations in San Francisco, London, Amsterdam, Reykjavik, Iceland. Singapore, Mexico City, Sao Paulo, Brazil, Taipei, Taiwan, and Bangkok, Thailand. Okay, so very diversified culture, a lot of time zones, a lot of different challenges. But the reality is that if you truly want to build a global product and a global platform, and you don't want to become a company that only serves the European Union market or only serves the U.S., you have to have offices in every single place because you want to be local as much as you can, but provide access to global clients. And without these local operations, without these local offices, you will never be able to be as local as you want. And you will become an expert or a tourist in the business. That's one of the key elements to everything that we do. Think global by act like a local. And so you really need to have a, an actual local presence as an office, because obviously there's been so much discussion about moving to a fully remote world, especially in tech. 
questioning how much office space companies need. But at a minimum, your feeling is that you need to have an actual physical presence in these key markets to be able to not just be a tourist. Yes, we're big believers in remote offices. We are not big believers, by the way, in distributed engineering and working from home engineering and stuff like that. On the contrary, our engineering is super concentrated in one place, actually two places now. Uh, but salespeople, support people, uh, operations people should be distributed and as close as possible to the client. Right. Your engineering, is it mostly in Israel and then another location? Yeah, it's 75% 80% almost is in Israel. And the second location is actually Iceland because of an acquisition that we did. So in terms of the folks actually doing the engineering, writing the code, you're a big believer in concentration and collaboration. I believe that the conversation doesn't include the whiteboard, doesn't exist. Our entire office, by the way, is built around whiteboards. Like everywhere you walk, you see whiteboards because the conversation has to be around the whiteboard because otherwise nothing will happen. I can tell you that what people can achieve in a face-to-face meeting in product and engineering in an hour is something that would take them five days over Zoom. Just because they don't get each other, they're distracted, they don't have the whiteboard, end and end, that's the difference. It's an hour versus five days. Right. The virtual whiteboard doesn't cut it. No, no, no. Your model feels a little like a self-service model where companies can pick and choose to some degree off the shelf the payment solution that they're looking for. Was that always the vision for the business model? Yeah, that was the concept from day one. We wanted to allow our clients to consume different types of products on top of our platform in every single country that they want to operate without dependencies. At the beginning, like I said, people thought it is a very bad model and impossible to run. But the reality is that the world is shifting to this model and we're super successful and a lot of other companies replicated it. Just want to ask you briefly about decentralized finance and how you think about that in terms of the payments industry resulting from things like blockchain technology. Is there improvements that you think could be game-changing for the industry from that kind of technology down the line? The reality is that with all the respect to decentralized finance, we still have a big problem that the only way to move money is with a bank, right? And with all the respect to cryptocurrency, still... Every single country on planet Earth has a central bank. The central bank defines the policy and the only entities that can actually move money are banks. If you really want to get to a decentralized financing world, there is a need to move away from things like SWIFT and make sure that fiat currency, not crypto, but fiat currency will move real time. Like, for example, in India with the UPI network and some other countries also invented real time payments. You've talked about the focus on the 100 billion payment volume as a three-year goal? It's two and a half years left. That just seemed like the right number to pick as your goal. The $100 billion one it represents at the end of the day also above a billion dollars in revenue. From a goal to the company and the goal to the market, it's a very high target. We decided to go as high as possible. You've talked about using sort of a three-pronged process of organic and M&A and then channel and channel being a lot of your focus going forward. We're big believers in embedded financing. So basically companies that are not fintech companies will embed financial capabilities within their own products in order to monetize on their consumers. And we call this model channel partnerships. Uh, and we think that 30% of the volume and the revenue that we'll have will come from there. When you think of innovation in the fintech space, are there particular things you foresee that you think is going to have a major impact for either the industry as a whole or Rapid specifically? 
there are two things that are happening, right? Uh, one is seamless payments and the fact that everybody's trying to make the payments look like when you pay, when you do use Uber, where you basically don't know that you even paid, right? Just call the cab, you walk out and basically you get charged. Uh, so I think that seamless payments is something that everybody's trying to get to across every single industry. It doesn't matter if it is a physical supermarket or some kind of an online store or whatever it is. And I think there is going to be quite a lot of changes there from a technological perspective, especially related to security, tokenization, and leveraging mobile and desktop devices. On the other hand, I think that a lot of things that are related to identity are also going to play a big part because of different regulations like GDPR and others to avoid fraud and also in order to make sure that payments are similar. You're now scaling your second company. Is there one or two critical pieces of advice you would give to a first-time founder? The first thing that I'm telling people is what we talked about originally about the fact that 80% of the time you need to fundraise in the beginning and the fact that the pitch of fundraising is completely different than selling the product. This is the mistake that I see again and again from first-time entrepreneurs. Uh, they just don't understand the concept of fundraising and this is why a lot of times they get bad valuations and bad deals in the first round. Not because the company was too early or whatever, just because they didn't know how to play this game. Well, listen, I want to thank you so much, Ari, for joining us. Really appreciate it. Well, that's it for the pod. Thanks again to our guest, Arik Stillman, co-founder and CEO of Rapid. As always, I want to thank our amazing McKinsey on Startups production team, Molly Carlin, Polly Noah, Sid Romtree, Myron Shergan, and Katie Znamorowski. And of course, thank you for listening. We hope you return for future episodes of McKinsey on Startups. This has been McKinsey on Startups, hosted by Daniel Eisenberg. We welcome your feedback, so please rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Hope you join us next time for more broad global perspectives on the challenges and opportunities for accelerating growth. Thanks for listening.